I'm Jeff Cohen. It's not every day you meet a former ski instructor who ultimately became a well-known Jewish historian and a college dean, but that's the story of our next guest, Dr. Henry Abramson, who is academic dean of Tarot University's Lander College of Arts and Sciences. He also became an observant Jew along the way, and he's here to share the story of how, along his journey, Judaism and his career have intertwined. Dr. Abramson, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really uh, pleased to be here speaking with you. And you can tell just from the introduction, we have a million things we want to get into, but we like to get to know our guests a little bit and their background. So tell us where your story begins. Oh, wow. I think the story begins on December 26, 1987, when I met my wife. <laughs> I was going a little further back than that in terms of where you grew up. I'm sure we'll get to your wife later in the interview. Okay. Well, prehistory. You said, like, when does my life begin? So I think that was a big day for me. Anyways, so I was born in uh, the early 1960s, well before cell phones or the internet and stuff like that, uh, in a rather unusual place, northern Ontario, Canada, a little town called Iroquois Falls. And um, I was the only Jewish child in this really small milling community. And I had a really great childhood, uh, you know, very outdoors, spent a lot of time in the woods, which up in Canada we call the bush a lot of winter sports and things like that. But around age 10, uh, my parents decided I really had to have something of a Jewish education. So at great personal expense, they sent me down to Toronto for an education. And um, I went to regular public school. And then after public school, I went for a couple of hours to the uh, Talmud Torah, like the afternoon school offered by a school called Eitz Chaim. And that's where I learned a little bit about Judaism. And um, I had my bar mitzvah, and then we went back up north to uh, Iroquois Falls. Why was it so important, do you think, for your parents, given that they chose to live in a place they knew didn't have a lot of Jews around them, that they felt this still had to be part of your life? Uh, there's no question that both my parents had a very strong uh, sense of their Jewish identity. My father came from a Lithuanian immigrant family, that went to tremendous lengths. You know, they're, they're basically they're running away from the Russian Empire. My, my Zaidi Alavashalem did not want to fight against the Japanese in the Russian invasion of Japan of 1904. And so, uh, you know, he fled to Canada. At the time, there was land grants for Baltic farmers. So my Zaidi said, okay, I'm a Baltic farmer. He was a terrible, terrible farmer. And within five years, he tried a whole host of occupations like selling um, confections and stationery, even tried to be a barber for a while. And eventually he settled in on a traditional Jewish expertise as a textile merchant. And he opened up a small clothing store that uh, ultimately my father ended up taking over. It was one of the oldest businesses in this very remote location. But when he came in 1904, there were like thousands of these little Jewish stores dotting the American and the Canadian hinterland. So that was kind of like a traditional sort of pattern for them. But there was no question that he and his wife, we brought from Lithuania a few years later, they were going to live a totally Jewish lifestyle. They shipped in their meat, packed in dry ice from Toronto and Montreal. And um, at the time when they lived there, there was a, a small but thriving Jewish community. The second generation, my father's generation in particular, that's when, you know, the Canadian-born kids made their way to large cities like Montreal, Calgary, Toronto. 
And my father ended up, he was one of the youngest, he stayed behind to take care of his elderly parents, and that's why he remained there and ultimately uh, continued the business and brought me up there. On my mother's side, she also comes from Lithuanian background, a very different kind of background, not so much sort of like uh, shtetl, but uh, more intelligentsia. She comes from a very long line of educators. I have like three high school Jewish principals in my uh, my grandfather's generation on that side. And, um, you know, they also were deeply committed to an intellectual kind of Lithuanian style of Judaism. And so, you know, my, my father and mother were like serious pioneers who really wanted to make it happen in the far north. The, um, you know, elements of the economy changed, the demographics changed, lots of Jews moved away, and by the time I was born, I was the, the last Jewish kid to be born in Iroquois Falls. And uh, they realized that in order to give me any kind of a sense of what it was like to be Jewish, they really had to do something different. They had been sending me every Sunday to um, traveling Malamed, kind of like in the shtetl, Tevye Fiddler on the Roof sort of thing, where, you know, this rabbi would, you know, <laughs> hitchhike literally through the north and show up in towns on his particular date and give these Hebrew lessons and stuff like that. But it really was insufficient. So um, the, what they did for me was really quite impressive. You know, my uh, mother moved in with me full-time. They got an apartment in Toronto, and uh, my father would commute every two weeks, spend two weeks with the business. He took in a partner, and then he would come down and live with us for two weeks. And, you know, we spent uh, three or four years doing that, which seemed perfectly normal to me as a 10-year-old kid. But trying to imagine doing that now for my own kids makes me understand, you know, what they did for my Jewish education. Given that sacrifice, what were your feelings about Judaism? You're seeing what they're doing by going through all this effort to make sure you're getting exposure to it. How did you feel about it at that age, around those bar mitzvah years? When I was first growing up in Iroquois Falls, you know, the, the nature of that community was it was sort of half Anglophone wasp and half Francophone Catholic. And uh, the two groups in town really hated each other quite a bit, lots of fighting. And the uh, there were a few outliers. It was myself. There was my good friend Peter Chin, who was the only Asian kid in town. And um, that was basically it for the whole population. And I thought when I grew up that Jews were like this tiny, tiny minority of the world population. And that, wow, it's so unusual that I have this very different background. We would get the Canadian Jewish news mailed up to us once a week. And as soon as I was able to read, I would like pour over it and like say, wow, look at what Jews do in different places. And I made a little scrapbook. I was especially interested in, you know, the Holocaust and the state of Israel, which is good because that's things that the Canadian Jewish news was also really interested in. And, um, you know, I had this, this image of Jews as this tiny, long-suffering people who are nevertheless able to contribute mightily to world civilization. And uh, I had kind of like a heroic idea of Jews in that regard. But then when I came to Toronto and we moved into a, a Jewish neighborhood on Bathurst Street, which is basically the Jewish street of the world, certainly of Canada, Everyone in school was Jewish. You know, even the non-Jews were Jewish. It was, like, amazing to me that Jews so populated the world. And I thought to myself, i got to revise my self-image because, wow, all these kids are Jewish. 
Then, of course, as I got older, I realized that my first model was actually more accurate. <laughs> I just happened to be in a little pocket of Yiddishkeit that uh, was overwhelming. But being in Toronto, I felt very alienated initially because I was no longer special. I was no longer different. I was like immersed in a mass of other Jews, many of whom were smarter, better athletes, did whatever kids value better than I did. And it was a humbling experience for me. When I went back to Iroquois Falls, however, that was a really dramatic moment because that's when I first discovered anti-Semitism. But I don't want to go too deeply into that now. I think you've got other questions for me. I was just thinking as you're coming to Toronto, you're meeting all these Jews. Are you starting to understand levels of Judaism? Are the kids Orthodox, conservative? Are you thinking about what level you might want to be as you start to see that you're, you're not the only Jew in the world? I don't think I had any sense of denominations. I did have the sense that there were people who took this way more seriously than I did, and that there were people who had like way more practices than my parents did, and my broader family, many of whom lived in Toronto at the time. And that was primarily through the exposure I had at school, because my father, uh, Oliver Shalom, he's a nonconformist in many ways. And, you know, when he started talking to his siblings who lived in Toronto, saying, OK, I got to get Henry down to some Jewish school. Where do you recommend? All of them said, well, send to this school, send to that school, the reform, conservative, whatever. But they all seemed to agree, whatever you do, don't send him to Eitz Chaim because they're crazy fanatics <laughs> there. And my father, being the kind of person he was, he said, OK, I'm definitely going to send my kid to the fanatic school. I guess he felt like he really wanted to give me total immersion and... Um, it was an amazing experience. So I, I encountered a lot of Orthodox teachers in Eitz Chaim, and what I really was amazed with was that they walked the walk. It wasn't just kind of like some interesting story that they told. They committed themselves to it. And you know what? They were actual things you're supposed to do, like, for example, wear tzitzis. That was a big deal at the time, getting tzitzis when I was 10 years old, saying, oh my gosh. Now, you know, I'd put them in my backpack, and when I went to do my regular day of school at Fisherville Junior High, and then I would, or, or Rockford Road Public School, and then I would go to Eitz Chaim, and I would put my tzitzis on over my shirt, and that's what all our public school kids did when we went to the school. And it felt like I was like joining a, a military, you know, I was like a uniform. I was like, oh, look at this, now I'm Jewish. The Parsha class, the Midrashim that they taught, was so fantastic. It was like Shakespeare. It was the Greek tragedies. It was so full of depth and emotion and power that even as a child, I really felt tremendous engagement with the, the stories of the Avos, the Maos, Tanakh, and so on. And, and that stayed with me. That really meant a lot to me. Let's go from all the things you just said that I think provide a lot of great context to what your childhood was like into the college years. And I'm wondering, given the experiences that you had, where did you choose to go? What did you want to study? And what role was religion going to now play, given what you had kind of in the bar mitzvah through high school years? Uh, I never really thought of myself as religious in any way. You know, this was kind of like an ethnic thing. And these are like a set of beliefs that sort of go along with ethnicity. But I never got rid of the idea that, well, we don't take this seriously, right? My parents sent me here, and it's sort of like part of our being Jewish means you learn these things, but don't actually like 
employ them, right? Like, you know, the joke that parents get together with their friends and they say, oh, my children went to yeshiva, my children went to Israel, and they say, maybe you should have your mezuzahs checked, right? Like, how far can, <laughs> how far can this go? So when I went back up to Iroquois Falls, I discovered anti-Semitism for the first time. I played with all the kids when I was, until I was 10 years old, till I left Iroquois Falls, and it didn't really matter, you know, because... We were just like buddies, you know, and, and at school, the French kids tend to go to the Catholic schools, but there were some also at the English school, but at the English public school, you know, I played with the English kids, and it was just, you know, whatever it was. Peter Chin and I were, were especially close because we were neighbors, and we were also, we sensed we were outsiders somehow, but I played with all the kids, Kuzmik and Maguire and Cournoyer, they're all my friends. But when I came back, when I was 14, after buying Bar Mitzvah, all of a sudden, these same kids were asking me to show them my horns and were like calling me Mozijrif, which is like in French for uh, cursed Jew. Like whoever says cursed Jew to people, right? We have lots of other things people say. That's, but it was like so weird. And I started, you know, because I had raised myself on this diet of, you know, stories about the Warsaw Ghetto, I wouldn't stand for it. And I got in a lot of fights. I got suspended from school. I... All kinds of nasty things happened. And it was a wake-up call. It was not only that Judaism is real and that means something, but you know what? I'm going to get beat up over it. And it's like, oh, all those things, like the Holocaust, are not in the distant past. This is actually lived reality for Jews today, which is the kind of feeling that, you know, it breaks my heart. I read about these all the time on social media. And, and of course, any Jews had this experience. But it's especially bad, you know, when you're walking to shul with your little kids on, on a Friday afternoon or something or walking back home on a Saturday and someone drives by in a car and shouts out the window, you know, F you Jews or effing Jews. And, and like, okay, I, I'm an old guy. I've, I've heard this before. But my kids, to realize that people hate us for no reason... That's really painful. So that's the moment that I discovered it. It was like a real shock because I'd never seen it before. And I was the only kid. I was totally alone in the high school. Wow. It was so, so hard on me. And, um, you know, I endured that for a while. And then eventually I moved back to Toronto. And uh, now I had to process this very complex, highly personal, but yet I think relatable to every Jew set of ideas. What is Judaism? On the one hand, it's a body of ancient ideas that are quaint and maybe poetic, but don't take them seriously. On the other hand, it's like an ethnicity where, you know, there are lots of other Jews who you may like or don't like, but it's a people. And now on the third hand, it's like, oh my gosh, and whether I like it or not, I'm going to get beat up over this. And I have to prepare for that. And I have to prepare my children for this. So that's how I entered the University of Toronto, sort of this stew in my head, and they were really important ideas to me at the time. I had not figured them out at all. And early on in, in my first year, I decided, by the way, I wanted to become a philosopher. I really enjoyed studying philosophy. That's what made me uniquely qualified to later become a ski instructor. <laughs> and um, early on in that first year, I encountered a great thinker, a man named Emil Fackenheim, who was actually one of the 20th century's most important Jewish philosophers. Uh, he's a reform rabbi, and a lot of the ideas that he taught I seriously disagree with, uh, but he had a huge influence on me. Um, 
and and it was towards the end of his career. He was actually in his final years of teaching at the University of Toronto, and he was accepted uh, to uh, and he had accepted an appointment uh, at Hebrew University. And um, at the end of my first year there, he asked me to come study with him in Jerusalem, and I was very honored. You know, protege kind of thing. So you know, he he provided me with a kind of a a way to synthesize these complexities that I was trying to deal with. Perhaps his most arresting and powerful thought was uh, codified in something he called the 614th commandment. Obviously that number, I'm sure many of your listeners realize there are 613 commandments in the traditional Jewish count, Tariyag Mitzvos. Um, so what is the 614th commandment? And it is, as he recorded in several of his books, to deny Hitler any posthumous victories, right? That a Jew is now commanded, as Fackenheim put it very poetically, he was a great writer, to hear the commanding voice of Sinai and the commanding voice of Auschwitz. And that command is, don't give the anti-Semites any more ground. You can't let them win at anything. It's a beautiful poetic idea, and it has tremendous weight and power. I think it's not logical, and I think it is counterfactual in a lot of ways, and, and in many ways really offensive to traditional Judaism. But, you know, he's a Holocaust survivor, and he could say things with his experiences that on a postmodernist level I can't disagree with. I can only deal with it in my own way. But it was perfect for me. It brought together all of the ideas I was struggling with, uh, I certainly wasn't ready to commit to any kind of observance, but I could get on board with that idea that my life has to be dedicated to the dark but nevertheless meaningful act of denying Hitler any posthumous victories. And so a lot of my ideology at that time, when I was in my early 20s, was like formulated around what does the Holocaust mean for Jews, for humanity, what is the role of Jews in a post-Holocaust world? Everything kind of like orbited around this dark sun of Auschwitz. And um, it was completely antithetical to the idea of building a healthy Jewish life, although it is definitely part of Jewish reality. So here's what I find a little surprising about your story. You have a guy who is wrestling with all these deep Jewish questions, wants to get into philosophy, finds his way to Israel. And I've interviewed enough people now where I would think that's the moment where Jewish observance kicks in. But you also said you become a ski instructor. So something must have happened that you did a complete 180 coming back, either from Israel or soon after. So what happens next? Yeah, no, I guess I didn't follow that kind of <laughs> rags to riches sort of story. I did get picked up at the wall. I did spend like a Shabbos and Mea Sharim and things like that. But I have to say that I, at the time where I was at, I felt it fundamentally alienating. You know, I came from a rural Canadian background. I had kind of like this Anglophone, Francophone mix of looking at the world. And to be sitting in a, a tiny apartment in Mea Sharim, forcing myself to eat a fish that looked horrible to me, I was just saying, this is not me. I, I'm, I'm very, very far away from this. I did enjoy the time I spent on a kibbutz. I really enjoyed that kind of socialist environment. Uh, but at Hebrew University, where I was studying, I felt myself fundamentally really separate from what everyone was doing. 
I used to spend a lot of time in my dorm room looking out. It was on Haratzofim, looking out into the Judean desert and saying, wow, I feel alone among Jews. I feel I'm not connected to these people. This is not my story. And then one night I was at Professor Fackenheim's home and uh, we had an argument over a philosophical approach to a contemporary political problem. I don't want to go into the details now, but we had a huge falling out. I could not believe that he took this particular position. I felt like it was a betrayal of every value that I had associated with him. Of course, what did I know about him, right? I learned with him for like a year and a half, and I was this enthusiastic young student, 18, 19 years old, and so I dropped out. And I left Israel, and I went back to Canada, and my life was a mess. I didn't know what I was doing with myself. All that philosophy stuff seemed out the window, and I couldn't connect anything Jewish, and it was a pretty nasty period. I will say that I was very, very fortunate to have run into Professor Bob Gibbs, and I was studying uh, Kant and Schopenhauer with him, and um, he sort of put me on a normal track to at least get me limping past the edge of my degree and graduate, uh, but I was a mess at that time. Jewishly, personally, I was a mess. Oh my gosh, this is a podcast. I'm sharing this <laughs> with the world. <laughs> you know, I guess it's cheaper than therapy, but I wonder what the blowback is going to be. It's therapy, but also it's going to be inspiration because we know your story turns around. So let, let's move into to that part. But it, it seems like maybe you discover skiing is a way to connect with nature and do something like totally different from academics. So is that where your head is at, at the time you go down the skiing route? Skiing was a beautiful thing. My father, Oliver Shalom, taught me to ski when I was a very young man, very young child, actually. I was like about three or four years old when he first put me on skis. And I always developed a, a deep love for that particular sport downhill skiing in particular, but I did cross-country, telemark, and, and so on. And um, one of the ways I, I made money as a college student was I taught skiing on the weekends and in a night school in a small municipal hill near where I lived in North York. On a philosophical level, I loved it. On a personal level, I loved it and so on. And I had no idea that it would play such a huge role in my life. But that brings us to the beginning of this discussion, which is when I met my wife and my life actually started. Right? Should we go there now? I think you gave us the perfect segue to explain how your future wife comes into the picture. <laughs> okay, very good. So I was an instructor at this time. And I remember December 26th because it was the day after Christmas and the ski hill was closed to the public, but open to instructors and open to instructors in training. And uh, my wife was an instructor in training. She was on the certification course. She is also a ski instructor. And I was just skiing for fun. And so that night I came down to the, the bottom of the hill and I got up to the ski toe and uh, I got in the singles line and I happened to... Uh, uh, notice that a, a beautiful young woman comes skiing up behind me, and, uh, and you know, I glanced at her, and she looked like she was out of a picture from Banff, Alberta. You know, I, I, a distinct image I had so powerfully in my mind. She, her cheeks were flushed, and, you know, the, her blonde hair was just peeking out from the corners of her toque. Toque is like a Canadian kind of hat. And um, I said, well, she's not going to want to line up with me, so I was in the singles line to get on alone, and I hear her say the first words she ever said to me was, move over. <laughs> and in fact, uh, and so I moved over because she wanted to get up to the hill. She was very enthusiastic. She wanted to get up the hill faster. And rather than waiting for the next lift, she would get on with me. 
And uh, so I've been moving over ever since and moving <laughs> upward, right? Moving up that hill with her. Uh, we had a conversation and more things developed. And, and ultimately, uh, you know, we, we built a life together. Thank God, six uh, amazing children and uh, many, many grandchildren. And I am deeply grateful to HaKadosh Baruch Hu for giving me that particular moment. But that's really what sort of started my personal healing with Judaism and uh, charted the rest of my life. Because once it became very clear that my wife was going to be the focal point of my life and the family that we built together, I realized that I did not have the luxury of sort of being a scatterbrained, barely graduated philosophy ski instructor. I had to like really prioritize because we're going to have a family. What does all this mean? And so with my wife's help and with a lot of really amazing teachers, I was able to sort of put together what was important to me and ultimately it led me to observance. The only part I don't understand is the way you describe that moment, it almost seems like something you would see in a movie. You're, you know, you're waiting online to go up the ski lift and a woman comes into your life and you have this flash of, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this person. So I could see that making someone think, all right, I got to get my priorities in order. It wouldn't necessarily lead to a path of Jewish observance, especially given some of the experiences you had as a child. So I can see how you got to a point of, this is the person for me. I have to be responsible. I want to build a life with this person. How does Judaism become a key component of this whole picture? That's an excellent question. First of all, I should clarify that the movie part of it is really true. Like, uh, it was like a toggle switch, on, off. As soon as I saw my wife, everything was over. That was really it. I had no questions from that very moment. Of course, all that other complicated stuff, you know, family and Judaism and, you know, work, that took a long time to piece together. But that initial sort of like change of turning around my life because this is going to be the no focus that was that was there and it's never decreased from from its intensity from that initial moment. I'm so grateful to Akadosh Baruch Hu because the impetus for all of these incremental but important changes was really my wife. She took a little more convincing, by the way. She did not have the same kind of aha moment. I had to convince <laughs> her that it had happened. But uh, Baruch Hashem was ultimately successful. But as we got more serious, it came down to the point where I had to reevaluate all the things. Like, for example, when I met my wife, again, as the mess I was at that time, my plan was to ski year-round. I was going to ski in New Zealand in Canadian summers and then come back to Canada to ski in the winters. I was professional not only as an instructor but as a coach, but what I really enjoyed and had, and I think a certain amount of talent at, was teaching disabled skiers. I had a tremendous personal satisfaction from teaching skiers who were amputees or were survivors of cerebral palsy or blind skiers, and I, and I really enjoyed working with these people who appreciated the beauty of skiing, and that was my plan. But what happened was one night I was training and we were using some bamboo gates, right? Like, you know, how slalom, you ski between these sort of gates. And the bamboo ones are the old-fashioned ones. They don't bend over when you hit them. They, uh, they break or you break when you hit them. So I caught a tip when I was going around uh, one turn and I ran into a flush, which is like a series of them straight in a line. And I broke several of them over my thigh. And... 
uh, I actually burst my femoral artery, which is a really big artery in the thigh that most people, when it's burst, you die because you bleed out in a very rapid amount of time. My skin didn't break. It was only an internal bursting because of the pressure of, of hitting the gates at about 20 miles an hour. Went to the hospital and the whole thing, and, and uh, I had to be in a wheelchair for six months. But I did not die, as you see. And um, that meant that all that other stuff, you know, had to be put on hold. I didn't know if I would ski again. There were even some questions if I would walk again after that. Thank God, full recovery and skiing as well. But it meant that my wife and I spent a lot more time together and I got to know her and was able to slowly work through these, these other parts of my life. So I can say that one of the greatest kindnesses that God ever gave me was that terrible skiing accident, which allowed me to prioritize my life appropriately around the things that were important. As you're getting to know each other during this time when you're in the wheelchair and and you already mentioned having six kids, so I would think you're having deep conversations about building a family, where you might settle down. So religion is coming up as part of that and thinking about what role Judaism is going to play in your life as a couple? Exactly. And, and my wife is new to Judaism, and um, she has a much clearer perspective of things than I did. She didn't go through the same sort of, you know, being the only Jew in town and then being uh, surrounded by Jews and then dealing with anti-Semitism. She didn't have to deal with any of that, but she did not have the benefit of a Jewish education. And so as she's thinking to herself, all right, well, you know, what's first, what's second, what's third? She had a, a uniquely powerful, clear vision of the direction she wanted to follow. We did a certain amount of experimentation. We went to some non-Orthodox synagogues at first, and actually, we were for uh, uh, quite a while a member of a conservative congregation that uh, I liked very much because, you know, with my degree in philosophy, I was already, you know, like a big macher in shul when I was like 25 years old or so. But my wife kept on obsessing over certain details. Like, for example, we lived in a neighborhood where we used to see young women walking their babies in their strollers to shul on Shabbos. And, you know, we would drive to shul all the time. But my wife would see these women and would say to herself, why do they do that? And, you know, the weather can be bad and stuff like that. And they're still doing that. And so, you know, after a while, she insisted we meet with an Orthodox rabbi, Rabbi Baruch Taub, who continues to play a role in my life as a mentor and a teacher. And um, she said, that's it. We're, we're going to check out this Orthodox synagogue. At first, I was, you know, opposed because I was really happy in the conservative synagogue. And we had a, a, a wonderful rabbi, Lawrence Troster, who was an amazing guy. But we made a home for ourselves in the Orthodox synagogue. And although it was very weird at first, because there were a lot of things that they did that we didn't do, and a lot of things that we wanted to continue doing that they would look down on, slowly, slowly, we began to adapt to the Orthodox environment. Did I, did I tell you the Red Lobster story? Not yet. I have a feeling you're about to, though, so go for it. Yeah. yeah, my wife doesn't listen to podcasts, so she doesn't like this story, but it's an important one for me. Uh, so I will share it with you and with the world since it's such a therapeutic conversation. <laughs> this is how it went. You know, we used to drive to synagogue, you know, attend services, and then we used to drive some places after we were married and we would have lunch somewhere. You know, and uh, so one, one Saturday, we're having lunch at a restaurant called Red Lobster, which is not under hashgacha by any, you know, <laughs> modern culture institution. And we're sitting there. It's on Shabbos. And um, they had a little thing in the middle of the table 
where you could fill out your um, what you thought about the restaurant. You know, it was a survey, and they had a little bunch of pencils there. And, you know, we're, we're waiting for our food to come. And I thought, okay, I'm going to fill out the survey. And I take the paper out, and I take the little pencil out, and I'm looking at the first few questions, and then put the pencil back, put the paper back. And my wife says to me, why are you putting it back? And I said, it's Shabbos. <laughs> my wife looks at me and she says, you know, because of course it's forbidden to write on Shabbos. And she looks at me and she says, we're in a non-kosher restaurant. We drove here, remember? We drove here. <laughs> and you don't want to fill out a survey because it's Shabbos? And I said, no, I don't want to fill it out because it's Shabbos. And my wife, she shook her head and said, my crazy husband. But it was like a turning point for me. It was like a small, silly thing. And I was not ready to commit to the whole deal, fill in every day and shotness checking and you name it. But you know what? Here's one thing I didn't have to do on Shabbos. And I'm going to just be Makada Shabbos by this little tiny bit. And, you know, it felt good. And I just dealt with the inconsistencies of all these other things I was still breaking Shabbos with. This is one area. I am the kind of person who doesn't fill out surveys on Shabbos. And uh, that kind of gave my neshama, I think, just a little bit of traction saying, you know, if you can do this, you can do something else too. And you can go on to another challenge and another challenge. And before I knew it, we were pretty much keeping Shabbos completely, my wife as well as I. I want to go in to one last piece of your story. I know there, there are many pieces, but one we didn't get into yet really is your career. Certainly you've taken on Judaism personally, but I introduced you as being part of Toro University, which means that it became a part of your career as well. So how did that happen? Basically, one of the things that came about when, when I met my wife and realized we had to like prioritize is that, okay, I am going to have to make more money than I do as a ski instructor. It's, it's just not enough of an income. So... I've realized I, I'm fairly good at school. I should go back to school. But I really did not want to study any more philosophy. Although I really enjoyed my undergraduate degree in that discipline, I found that by the time I get to the, to the third, fourth year, and we were discussing meta-ethics, and this is when you know, we we're studying Camus and, and postmodernism and stuff, I feel like I am learning something about nothing in a very deep way. And I couldn't put my mind around it anymore. But what I realized I liked was the history of ideas. I liked how ideas changed over time, how uh, communities were shaped by ideas and so on. So I said, okay, I'm going to do history. And um, that turned out to be great. And since I was really still deeply engaged with questions of what does it mean to be a Jew, identity is an incredibly important question for me. Uh, I said, okay, I'm going to just study Jewish history. And uh, that basically took me in, in that direction. I wrote my first book on the history of the Jews of Ukraine. It was later published by Harvard University. And I got you know teaching positions at some of the great universities of the world. I, Harvard published my dissertation, so I spent time there. I spent time at Cornell, at Oxford, Hebrew University again after my first experience with it as an undergraduate. And ultimately, uh, you know, a tenure-track position in a state school in Florida. How that connected me to Turo, which is a, a really amazing institution. It's under Jewish auspices, although we have lots and lots of non-Jewish students as well. We have six medical schools, you know, 19,000 students scattered around the globe on many different campuses. The former president, the incredible individual known as Dr. Bernard Lanner, wanted to start a school in Miami. I was in Boca Raton at that time, and um, I was sort of like uh, 
an underground secret agent for the yeshivas and seminaries because I would have lots of Jewish students come to my classes and we'd, we'd talk and stuff like that. And then I would send, you know, something like a dozen or so every year would go off to Jerusalem to study in, in uh, yeshivas and seminaries. So he found out about me and he tapped me to uh, work with Turo University and, and that turned out to be absolutely fantastic for me. I'm very grateful for Kodesh Baruch Hu to, to give me all these opportunities and, and to really follow my dreams of studying Jewish history and, and learn a little bit about what it means to be a Jew as a whole. We also should mention that because Saturday to Shabbos is sponsored by the OU, you also do some work with the OU. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about that work as well. Oh, great. Rabbi Moshe Schwed, who is a, uh, a brilliant uh, innovator in many ways, has a surprising gift for figuring out how social media can be used for the tasks that Judaism has in the 21st century. He tapped me with what I thought was a crazy idea to do a, a video on every daf of Gemara, 2,711 of them, to go along with the Dafyomi program of studying Talmud. And uh, at first I thought it was crazy, but my rabbi, Rabbi Yaakov Trump, said, no, I think you should do this. So I've been doing it now for about, uh, I guess, uh, three or four years. It's a seven-year cycle, and uh, I have tremendous fun with it. Yeah, so basically, if you go on to the Aldaf app, which is a project of the OU, of Rabbi Shwed, then um, you can find this little tile that says Jewish History in Dafyomi. And uh, I provide like a one to five minute class on something historical in that particular daf of Gemara. It could be anything from uh, biography to uh, some geography to uh, material culture. You know, it'd be a wide variety of things. And uh, it, it's it's like the Talmud. It's, it seems to be like completely tangential. You have no idea what's going to be on the next day based on what you're studying today. That's not totally true. There is like, in the Talmud, there is a much more sophisticated connection and everything actually fits in it in a, in a very bizarre non-Western way. Uh, but the, my particular shear can go off in radical tangents. But thank you. Yeah, I, I have a great uh, amount of uh, pleasure from that. And we always close our interviews with the lightning round, but I want to ask you one final question before we get to that. And I usually ask my guests what's coming up for them in the future, but because you are a historian, I feel like I should ask you who's the next historical figure you're planning to research. Ah, okay. Well, that, that's, that's great. Um, I would like to say something about what's going on in, in my future projects because it's, it's not so much about an individual, but I'll come back to the individual question. The, uh, my next big project, which I'm really excited for, is um, I'm under contract with Koran Publishers in Jerusalem to produce a three-volume history of the Jewish people. And my goal is to put in the hands of Jewish families around the world the perfect bar mitzvah present for the next century. Uh, so this three-volume series, we're really working hard to make it just the right price point that it'll be like something you could give to a 13-year-old or a 12-year-old girl, bat mitzvah. And it's designed to be, from prehistory up to the, the present day, a multi-volume, single-author uh, study of Jewish history is, is a rather audacious kind of task that uh, very few historians have undertaken but I think it's really time for it, particularly because of the nature of the challenges that we live among today. So the first volume is right now in the copy editing process, and uh, hopefully it'll appear in the next year or so. And um, that, that's what's really occupying a lot of my 
energies. In terms of the individual that I'm studying, I wrote a book on the Piasechna Rebbe, the famous Eish Kodesh, uh, who was the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto and whose writings were discovered buried in the Warsaw Ghetto rubble in 1950. And that book had found a, an audience, and I'm very grateful that, that many people have derived meaning from his grappling with the Holocaust in you know the ninth circle of hell in Warsaw. I have a follow-up volume that looks at some of his pre-roar work, which I think was incredibly important, but has not been adequately studied. I put that on the side until I finish this Quorum project, but that's who I'm going to be writing about next. By the way, I'm really glad you mentioned with your book that it's going to be a bar about mitzvah gift, because... I often hear my friends say, oh, how many times can we give these kids a sitter and a chumash? They're getting it at school anyway, and I don't think they value the gifts. I think you're on the right track of something that'll be seen as different, and hopefully they'll actually pick up and, and spend time with. Uh, that's exactly who I'm writing it for. Now, I'm, I'm writing it, though, really for like uh, college age or maybe a bright high school student, because chances are it will sit on the shelf for many years. But when they're ready to pick it up, <laughs> they'll say, hey, this is actually like reasonably sophisticated and, and, and engaging. So... I'm writing actually for who I was at that age, that if I had read this book, I could have saved so much time. <laughs> I could have just gone straight to what's important. Well said. All right, let's close the interview now with the lightning round. Are you ready? Not really. I should have like prepared for it, but okay, I'm ready. You want a little caffeine sort of. first or you want to dive in? Here we go. All right, first question. Who do you view as the most misunderstood figure in Jewish history? I think one of the most misunderstood people in Jewish history is Uriel da Costa, who was a really important individual in the early 16th century. He was raised as a Catholic in Portugal after the uh, Inquisition. And when his family revealed to him as an adult that he's actually Jewish, and he began to explore his Judaism in Amsterdam in a much freer environment, he found that it was impossible for him to reconcile his ideal vision of what Judaism meant with actual Jews that he encountered in the street. Uh, his life ends tragically, and he certainly dealt with a lot of demons in his life, but I frequently think about the sort of challenges he had with his Jewish identity he was unable to find a way forward for himself personally, uh, but he's, in my mind, the most misunderstood figure in Jewish history. Second question, which contemporary Jewish figure do you believe will still be remembered many generations from now? I think the Lubavitcher Rebbe has made an impact that will be on the scale of Maimonides. I think that he's one of the most influential figures of our times, the Lubavitcher Rebbe was a towering figure who I think made a huge difference in the arc of Jewish life and survival in the modern era. I think we'll still be talking about him 500 years from now. Dr. Abramson, you are out of the lightning round, so I want to say thank you so much for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much. Is there like when you're out of the lightning round, do you like get a door prize? You know, and here's a new car. <laughs> we don't have a budget for new cars, but we'll see what we can do. <laughs> okay. Thank you. This has been uh, deeply therapeutic for me. I appreciate the opportunity to go back and think about my own life. Thank you so much. It was nice speaking with you. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. 
Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.